Our reading this morning is from uh, Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, going through to chapter 6 verse 8. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on, on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. 
for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is God's word. Morning all, Uh, my name's Scott. As we come to God's word, uh, let's pray together. Father, if you had not spoken, uh, we would not exist. If you had not spoken, we would be lost. And yet we praise you that you have spoken to us. And we pray that you might speak now as we uh, look at your word together. Please change us as we hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've ever wondered uh, why the Bible has quite so much to say about sin and judgment. I mean, is humanity really all that bad? Sure, we're not, we're not perfect, are we? We can, we can acknowledge that. But we've made progress, uh, certainly over the centuries, if you look back over human history. Now we have, what do we have? We have modern medicine. We have liberal democracy. Uh, we have a tolerant uh, society. We're, we're really doing quite well, are we not? Yes, there's still plenty of problems in the world. Uh, we can all see that. But at least in the 21st century, at least in the, in the West, uh, surely we've come on leaps and bounds. Maybe uh, God is just being a little bit over-harsh, a little bit over-critical with us all. Can't he see how well we're doing? Let's let's, um, have a little think about human progress for a minute, shall we? Um, We live in a world uh, in which in the last uh, 10 months of last year, uh, the UN said that Boko Haram in Nigeria used 83 children to carry out suicide bomb attacks. Those 83, 55 uh, were young girls, most of them under the age of 15, and one was a, was a baby uh, strapped to a young girl. Now, it'd be easy to say, of course, things like that don't happen in the UK, do they? Don't happen on our streets. No, uh, but um, one article uh, called the UK the global hub for modern slavery, with London at its very heart. Anti-slavery commissioner um, Kevin Highland said that the number of people living in slavery in the UK today is considerably higher than the current estimate of 13,000. The true number, he says, is closer to the tens of thousands. That's the UK. That's the city uh, we live in. The UK where uh, three men can walk up uh, to a three-year-old child and deliberately throw acid uh, in his face. The UK where uh, a man's convicted this week after months of physical abuse of of shaking his adopted daughter so hard that she dies. That's that's the UK. So if we if we have progressed, I wonder really how far we have uh, come on. If God were giving an assessment of 21st century uh, Britain, 21st century humanity, how close to Genesis 6 verse 5 would he get? And could we really say that God would be wrong to bring judgment on the whole earth today? One of the things that Genesis teaches us 
is that humanity hasn't really changed all that much. And for all our progress, um, at heart, uh, we are the same as we've always been. And that's one of the reasons why Genesis is so wonderfully relevant uh, for us today. It may not be a a 21st century textbook uh, outlining uh, the origins of humanity, but it is much more useful uh, than that because it is the story of who we are, of where we've come from, of how we relate to God. And that is one of the reasons why we need to hear what Genesis, what these strange verses in Genesis have to say to us today. But it's been a while, hasn't it, since, uh, since we looked at Genesis, so let me just remind us where we've got up to, Genesis 1 to 4. Genesis 1 and 2, God is the creator of everything. Uh, literally, there is not a part of the universe that God did not create. The pinnacle of his creation, the thing that takes creation from good to very good, is his creation of Adam and Eve. The man and the woman made in the image of God to rule over creation under God. But, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. They, they choose to deliberately uh, disobey God. And God's very good creation is spoiled. As a result of their sin, the ground is cursed. They are cast out of the garden, and God says that they will die. There's also a little glimmer of hope in Genesis 3, isn't there? Genesis 3, verse 15, where God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And so the wait for that seed begins. When will this seed come? Maybe it'll be in Genesis 4 with the next generation, Cain and Abel. Well, that didn't exactly work out either. Cain's murder of his brother uh, continues the pattern established by his parents. As he turns from his loving creator to follow the desires of his own heart. And so Abel, the seed, far from crushing the serpent's head, has his own head crushed. But hope remains because Seth is born uh, to Adam and Eve. And that line of hope continues through Seth. The promises that God has given come to Seth. And so we arrive today at chapter 5, starting with Adam, tracing that line of hope through Seth to Noah. We're going to see three very simple things uh, this morning. Uh, They're on your handout if you want to follow along. The first of those is that death reigns, but hope remains. Death reigns, but hope remains. In verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we're reminded that God has been extraordinarily gracious to humanity. He has created them in his likeness. Nothing else in all of creation uh, can claim that. And despite the fall, that likeness, that image, remains. It is passed on from Adam to Seth. Seth is in Adam's image, in Adam's likeness, in the same language as Genesis 1. The image of God remains despite Adam's sin. 
But that's not it. That's not all, is there? Because at the same time as those line of promises continue, God was not bluffing when he told Adam and Eve that they would die. Just as God had said would happen, after Adam lives 930 years, a good innings, I guess, but Adam dies. And so a pattern is established, isn't it? We see it right through the chapter. He lived, he became the father of sons and daughters, and then he died. Again and again, eight times in total in this chapter, and then he died. We're not told much about each man, are we? But we are told the one thing that happens to them all, and then he died. Each name is a, is a life, isn't it? A life full of stories and hopes and ambitions. But it all comes down to that one phrase, and then he died. Death has taken hold of humanity. Death reigns from the time of Adam. Um, genealogy has kind of become cool again, hasn't it? I don't know if it was ever cool before, but it's now cool again. Um, if you want, you can take a little swab uh, of the inside of your mouth and you can send it away to multiple websites. Ancestry.com is one. Uh, and they'll analyze your DNA. And they'll come back, uh, if you pay them a fee, quite a substantial fee um, for all they do, um, they'll come back and tell you the percentage uh, of your makeup. They'll tell you where you come from. Uh, how much Viking do you have? Everybody wants a bit of Viking. Uh, how much Anglo-Saxon? Um, or if you're very fortunate, how much Irish descendancy you have? Um, there's, there's Ancestry.com. There's also Who Do You Think You Are, which is in, what, series 12, 14? If you haven't seen it, it's where a celebrity uh, traces their family tree uh, through the years. Most generations uh, just get a sort of line on the little chart that they show. He lived, he, had, uh, he or she had children, he died. But that, that would make for a pretty dull show if that was just endless. Um, he lived, uh, he had children, he died. And so they, they home in, don't they, on one or two of the interesting cases. Now, usually the interesting cases are um, the criminal past, uh, the royal connection, or the person who abolished slavery. It's usually one of those three. But um, whichever it is, uh, there's a pattern to the stories that they tell, isn't there? There's there's some um, adversity that the person is born into. There's their battle to overcome uh, that adversity. Maybe they settle down, they have a family of their own, they have children. There's more adversity. The pattern goes on. And, And as the story is told, the celebrity and the audience get really into it. Don't you? you get emotionally connected to these people who've been dead for hundreds of years. And they often are genuinely moving stories of, of courage, of perseverance in the face of trial. But, but then comes that inevitable moment in the public records office when the expert slides a long piece of paper across the table and asks the celebrity to have a look. And as the celebrity is confronted with the reality of death, they're shocked, genuinely moved often. See, even when you're talking about your seven times great-grandmother, death hits us like a ton of bricks. 
I mean, that, that celebrity knew that this person was dead before they even begun. That's the whole point. And yet when it's, when it's there in front of you on a bit of paper, it's stark, shocking. It's the same as, as we read chapter 5. Again and again, and then he died. Death reigns from the time of Adam. Death reigns, but hope remains. See, even in this family line, there is one man who rather incredibly avoids the then he died pattern. If this were an episode of Who Do You Think You Are, we'd we're definitely spending a little bit more time on Enoch. Verse 24 of chapter 5, we're told that Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no, was no more because God took him away. And you kind of think, can we not have a little bit more, please? Is that, that all we get? What is going on? In the whole Bible, um, only Enoch and Elijah avoid the and then he died experience. We're not told much uh, beyond what we get here about Enoch. But what it is, is a glimmer of hope in the midst of the reign of death. God is still sovereign over all of creation, and death will not have the final word. Death will not be the end. And so although Enoch uh, lives a, a mere 365 years, Uh, Not bad, but the shortest, actually, of anyone in this list. Enoch is the one who receives the greatest blessing uh, from God. That's Enoch, a a glimmer of hope. And and then skip forward a couple more generations. We reach Lamech. Not told much about Lamech, apart from the fact that he has a son who he names Noah. Now, Noah sounds like the Hebrew for comfort, comfort. And Lamech's hope there is that Noah will bring us comfort in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. No pressure on young Noah, not much anyway. And like most parents, I guess, Lamech Lamech hoped that his son would make a difference in the world. Maybe, Maybe he hoped he would become a great engineer and revolutionize local agriculture. That's what it's called. Maybe he hoped he'd be a great, uh, a great architect and build a, a monument, a city that would last for generations. Will the boy Noah live up to his name? Will he be a comfort Well, as we get into these chapters uh, 5 through 9, in the coming weeks, we'll see a bit more about this guy, Noah. We'll see the great irony of Lamech's naming of him. Because uh, Noah will be a comfort to humanity, but not in the way that Lamech could ever have imagined. That's Lamech, that's Noah. Lamech uh, follows the same pattern uh, as all the rest and bites the dust. And despite the hope which remains, death reigns. And then we come to chapter 6, where the family tree gets interrupted, and we zoom out 
uh, and get a picture of the whole of humanity. And it is not a happy picture. That takes us to the second thing that we'll see this morning, which is, as wickedness extends, God proclaims his judgment. As wickedness extends, God proclaims his judgment. These, um, these are slightly strange verses, aren't they? Um, I'm, I'm going to be up front. I don't really know uh, who the sons of God or the Nephilim are. Um, if you've got an idea, uh, feel free to come and chat to me at the end. I'm not entirely sure what's going on when these sons of God uh, marry uh, the daughters of humans. Um, reams and reams have been written uh, over the years about, about these things. Um, there are three main options, really. It could be that the sons of God are some sort of angelic being and that they've come and, and messed in the affairs of humanity. But that doesn't quite fit with, with Jesus uh, later in the New Testament telling us that angels don't marry. Uh, it could be that the sons of God are descendants of Seth. They're that line of promise. And that as they intermarry with, with Cain's line, uh, God is not pleased. But that would be a, a, a slightly strange way of phrasing it. It could be um, that the sons of God were ancient kings who were using their positions of privilege uh, to take advantage, uh, to take what they wanted, to take whoever, whomever they choose. Without getting bogged down in the details, which, whichever of those options or another one it is, I think the thing we're supposed to see is that it is not pleasing to God what, what humanity are involved in. This is the pattern. The sons of God saw that the daughters of human beings were beautiful, literally good, and they took them for themselves. They saw something that was good and they took it. It's the same pattern of sin from Genesis 3, isn't it, where Eve sees that the fruit is good and takes it. See, humanity is once more choosing to do what is good in their own eyes rather than listening to God. And so God in his goodness chooses to restrain evil. It's not clear, um, again, not clear to me anyway, whether the 120 years uh, is God limiting the lifespan of human beings. Um, Certainly the the long lives that we see in in chapter 5 begin to decrease as Genesis goes on. It could be that. Or it could be that the 120 years is a period of grace, uh, delaying God's judgment, a period before uh, the flood. Again, either way, God in his kindness chooses to restrain human evil. Whatever is going on in chapters in verses 1 to 4, it is part of a wider problem. Um, as is so often the case, um, this society's sexual ethic is a good thermometer of their overall moral state. The twisting of God's good gift of marriage that we see here is symptomatic of humanity's attitude towards God. And so in verse 5, we're given God's bleak assessment of the situation. Look down at verse 5 again of chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. 
the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. See, wickedness has escalated out of all control. No longer um, just Adam and Eve in a garden. No longer just hot-headed Cain, a one-off incident. The whole human race is caught up in this spiral of sin. The devastating assessment that God of what God sees is that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Pretty, pretty damning assessment, isn't it? The wickedness is absolute, is total. It's not just their outward action, how they're behaving. Um, it is every inclination of their hearts. Not one good thought or motivation. Not one. It's habitual, isn't it? It's all the time. Um, there is no let up, there is no pause, no ceasing for humanity's evil. This is IS meets Nazi Germany, meets modern slavery, child sacrifice, and then some. And it's, it's made all the more awful because the last time that God looked and saw something in Genesis was when he saw all that he had created and said that it was very good. Could it be more opposite uh, now? There is literally not one good thing. In recent weeks, we've been looking at Deuteronomy, haven't we? And we've seen that what God requires of his people is a heart that loves him, that we would love him with our whole heart, soul, and strength. But humanity in Genesis 6 has not even a spare thought for its creator. They are so caught up in their evil that they don't pause for one second to consider what God would want. I wonder how, how familiar that sounds. So you look at our world today, maybe, maybe we wouldn't assess it in Genesis 6 terms. But could we, could we really say that, that God would be wrong in his assessment if he said that of today? Now, in one sense, Genesis 6, thankfully, it was a unique time. It was the low point for humanity. But I wonder, are we really, are we really so different uh, today? See, the rest of the Bible doesn't have a particularly higher view of, of humanity's goodness either. Psalm 53, um, God looks again on humanity to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And as God looks, what does he see? Well, he sees that everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul picks up those words in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands God. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We don't often view our world in those stark terms, do we? But it is 
the Bible's assessment of us. If there is anything good in humanity now, if there is any truth in human progress, it is only because of God's restraining hand holding back evil. And it is only as the gospel has gone to work and impacted this world for good. But in Genesis 6, there is no such gospel impact. To the extent that, that we come to one of the most remarkable verses in the whole of the Old Testament. Look down again at verse 6. Chapter 6. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So awful is humanity's wickedness that the Creator God regrets his creation. Now, we could ask all sorts of questions here about whether God can regret something if he is unchanging, as the Bible says he is. Let me just say on that 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 God's regret is different to our regret because he is God and we are creatures. How does that work? Well, uh, for example, um, I might regret uh, the second helping of chocolate fudge cake that I had last night. And because I, I get indigestion later and can't sleep. I've made a mistake, and I regret something that I did. Um, or less trivially, perhaps, I'm, I might regret not taking the opportunity to tell someone close to me that I loved them before it was too late. I didn't know something would happen, and so when it does happen, it takes me by, su- by surprise, and I'm filled with regret. Um, God's regret is not like that because God is not taken by surprise. He hasn't made a mistake. He is sovereign and he knew this would happen. He knew humanity's wickedness would, would reach this level. But God is so holy and perfect that the scale of human uh, wickedness uh, makes him angry, rightly angry. Uh, What's translated in our Bibles is his heart was deeply troubled, is a little soft. It's it's more like a a mix of anguish and rage. God will not stand by forever and watch the wickedness of humanity. He will act uh, to deal with his creation, even if that means the devastating judgment of verse 7. Verse 7, so the Lord said... I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. The judgment that God proclaims on creation is a reversal um, of Genesis 1, isn't it? Genesis 1, humanity was created uh, to tend the earth and to rule over all the living things. But now, because of the wickedness of humanity, all the living things will be wiped out from the face of the earth. That that wiping out uh, from the face of the earth is is like erasing a name from a record. Like a a doctor uh, being struck off at the medical register. And it is a vivid picture of humanity's fall from grace. Grace. 
It's a bit like um, this man here. I've got a picture of him. Lance Armstrong. Um, once the, the poster boy uh, of world cycling, of world sport, perhaps. Seven Tour de France wins. Seemingly untouchable at the greatest ever. And yet when, when the truth of his cheating uh, came to light, all of that came crumbling down, didn't it? And his wins have literally been erased from the record book. Uh, the next slide has, maybe you can't see that, that's the Wikipedia page of Tour de France winners. And I don't know if you can see it, but every single one, seven in a row, Lance Armstrong, but a line for each one. Wiped out. And so serious uh, was the problem of doping at the time in, in cycling that those wins haven't been reallocated. Um, it's as if they never happened at all. And so it is for humanity in Genesis 6. As God proclaims, he will wipe them from the face of the earth. They will be no more as if God had never even created them. Death, it seems, will come to all. The reign of death, which began with Adam, will be absolute. Or will it? See, at the end of our passage, uh, a passage of, of devastating desperation, we get this extraordinary possibility of hope. That's where our passage lands, and that's where our final point will be. The only hope remaining that God will show favor. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Just when it seems that there is no hope for humanity, God shows his grace, his favor. It's the same word. When humanity is at its end, when there is no hope remaining, the only hope is that God will show his favor. Humanity's hope doesn't lie in themselves, in their ability to reform, in their ability to advance progress enough. No, their hope comes from outside of themselves as God extends grace to one man. God's judgment will remain. We'll see that in coming weeks. It remains because he must punish human wickedness. And yet he will extend his favor, even as he judges. And the only hope for humanity now is the same, isn't it? Our hope does not lie in ourselves, in our ability to reform or progress. You know, the only hope which remains is that God might show his favor. And our hope is sure and certain because of another man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Luke 2, uh, verse 52, tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. See, Jesus is the one who 
comes from this line of hope. A direct descendant of each of those men in chapter 5 of Genesis. Jesus is the one who knows all about death. Who knows all about the depth of human wickedness. Because he was mocked and jeered and nailed to a cross. Jesus is the one who bears the full judgment of God. Jesus is the one who was wiped from the face of the earth so that we might find favor in the eyes of the Lord. John 1, out of his fullness, we have all received grace. Why does the Bible have quite so much to say about sin and judgment? Genesis 5 and 6 show us the depths to which human wickedness can descend. It shows us God's good and right proclamation of judgment. But it also shows us the depths of his grace, even in the midst of his judgment. And it does that that we might turn and marvel at that grace that we might cry out to him to show us his favor and that we might rejoice that he has been extraordinarily gracious to us in the Lord Jesus. It can be very tempting, can't it, to trust in the promise of human progress. Give us a bit longer, one more medical breakthrough, one more technological advance, the triumph of liberal democracy. but don't be fooled into placing your hope in human progress, in human ability. Because we haven't changed that much since Genesis 6. Instead, why not place your hope where hope remains, in the one who extends grace to those who deserve his judgment. Shall we pray together? The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who sees wickedness and who will not let wickedness go unpunished. If it were not for your extraordinary grace, we would be without hope. Please show us more of that favor towards us in the Lord Jesus, that we might look to him alone as our only true and lasting hope. In his precious name, amen.